in John chapter 13. The children, you are dismissed for children's church as well. John chapter 13. A sermon I've entitled, Wash Me Also. Today, all over the world, people are making New Year's resolutions. Churches are gathering around, and they're probably, even at the doors, have a list of New Year's resolutions. And if I was a betting man, I bet that even last night or on your way over here this morning, you probably said to your spouse, I, I bet somewhere in this sermon the preacher is going to talk about New Year's resolutions and our failure to keep them. But I'll assure you that that is the last time you'll hear me talk about New Year's resolutions today. I'm not going to mention them. But what I do want to mention today is long-term visions or goals for the church. Casting long-term vision and a goal within the local body. And I'm going to share these goals at the conclusion of the sermon in hopes of stirring us up in hopes of equipping us for a new year and beyond. I want to ask you a few questions through the sermon today. Through the duration of this sermon, I want to ask you a few questions. Feel free to jot them down. Feel free to, to pray through them in your quiet time. Work through them with your family. I'm going to ask you a very, very simple, very elementary question. The question is this. Is this right here. Do you trust the Lord Jesus? Very simple, right? In fact, every sermon you'll ever hear should have that ingrained in every word, every point. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him with your life? I want you to think about that question, and we'll resurface that question throughout the duration of this sermon. Today we're diving back into the Gospel of, of John, specifically chapter 13. And according to my calculations, it has taken us a little bit over two years to walk through this gospel. Two years with some breaks in between. We've had Baptist Men's Day. We've had Focus Sunday uh, in February. We've had uh, Youth, Youth Sunday. We've had a few things in between. And we had a break in between each chapter. So roughly two years to work through this gospel. We started May 31st, 2015, and we'll end in August of 2017. And I trust and I hope and I pray that this has been helpful to the body. I hope that this has been helpful. I hope that this, these sermons have helped you grow in your faith with the Lord Jesus. It is wonderful to be able to have the freedom to walk through books of the Bible together with, in a congregational setting. It is good to be able and, and helpful and healthy to walk through portions of scripture together books of the bible together it builds fellowship one with another it helps us to get on the same page not only biblically but theologically it helps us to be on the same page together because if i say for the wages of sin is death i mean we all should be on the same page there so hopefully this has been a benefit to you walking through john and we'll finish up we have some we have some breaks in between but my calculations will finish in August unless the Lord comes and carries us home to be with himself, and that would be okay too. 
With that said, turn to John chapter 13, and I want to kind of peek back into chapter 12. We witnessed the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary, and I asked a question, and you'll probably, probably remember this question I asked to you. I asked you this, under that discourse, would you rather be, or are you rather, are you more like Judas, or are you more like Mary? Do you desire to be more like Mary, which entails that we are, are devoted, uh, we show humility, uh, uh, we show servitude to the Lord, or, or are we uh, more inclined to be like Judas most of, our, most of our lives, which we don't trust God at his will, and sometimes we don't trust the Lord as in control, and sometimes we doubt it, and sometimes we doubt the work of the Lord. Are we more like Mary, or, or are we more like Judas? And we had asked that question almost two weeks in a row, and, and, and we evaluated that in the text. We have also in chapter 12 the triumphant entry, the Lord Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And my Bible tells me that people were seeking Jesus. We had three categories worth of, uh, of, of folks there. We had people that were seeking Jesus because they were genuinely wanting to be his disciple. You had people seeking Jesus uh, just because they were curious, wanted to see what uh, this, this man is all about, about. And then you had the third type of individuals that wanted to get closer, were seeking Jesus because they wanted to persecute him. and They wanted to, they wanted to, they wanted to see him dead. They wanted to see him crucified but regardless there was people in the streets there trying to get close to Jesus even the Greeks it says were seeking him but in chapter 12 there are a few amazing verses that we highlighted as we move through that book there is a verse within the text where Jesus uh, is foreshadowing his own crucifixion and his death he, fo he, he highlights his his death and his crucifixion, for he says in verse 32, And when I, Jesus, his I, am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. I will draw all folks into myself, all people into myself. And so Jesus also moves along and shows the importance of his advent into the world. We celebrated Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Why did he come? Verse 46 helps us to understand why Jesus came into the world. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The reason that Jesus came into the world is so you would not remain in darkness, so I would not be rem remaining in darkness, so that I, my eyes would be open to the truth of, of, of the Lord and his salvation. Now, with that context in mind, let's move forward in a message that depicts what is known as the Last Supper and a message I have entitled, Wash Me Also. Father, we ask you for the blessing upon the reading of your word. Father, speak to our hearts in a mighty way. We thank you and we lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to ask another question. You might say, Preacher, you're asking a bunch of questions today. It sounds to me like you're meddling this morning. And... That might be the case. It may be the case that God's Word is doing exactly what God's Word does. Engages us and makes us answer. But I want to ask you a question. Who influences you? Who influences you? The reading of the text this morning, we're going to find out, are we influenced more by the love of Jesus, and so we show love towards others in our humility and our servitude, or are we more influenced by our own selfish desires, our selfishness, the carnality of our own heart and mind? Are we influenced by Christ, or are we influenced more by our preferences and our own needs 
in the world over the needs of the Lord. Verse 1 says, Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John informs us, informs the reader, informs the immediate audience to whom he is writing to that this was before the feast of Passover, a very, very important part of Jewish or Hebrew history. This feast was established as a memorial, the deliverance of the children of Israel out of the land of Goshen. Remember in the Exodus, as Moses was the deliverer who let who led the people of Israel out of the land of Goshen. And so as Moses is that deliverer for the Israelites, Jesus becomes the ultimate deliverer. So there is a comparison there. And so John reminds us there is importance. There is important foreshadowing for the feast of Passover. It's important in the narrative. It's important in the text. But Jesus being God, my Bible tells me there, we've read it, that he knew the hour that had come upon him. He knew the time was coming upon him when he would be betrayed and when he would be crucified. Knowing what is to come for his disciples as well, Jesus said to them, love his that was in the world. As he stood up, he said to have shown love to his that were in the world. He knew the tasks that were ahead of each and every one of them. He knew that every disciple that he laid his eyes on, every apostle that he laid his eyes on, except, of course, for Judas, who died by his own hand, except for John, who died of old age, every single one of them would die for the gospel. Every single one of them would be a martyr for the gospel. Knowing this... And knowing the heavy load that was ahead of them, it said that he loved them because they were in the world. They would have to suffer because they were in the world. He saw the long task ahead of them. He, he knew the, that they would have to die for, for his sake. Mentioning of them being in the world just shows proof of that. But Jesus again shows the elements for making disciples in the next few verses. We want to know what disciple-making looks like. We, all we have to do is read what Jesus did. All we have to do is read in the gospel. Just press on a little bit further, and we'll find there is a template for making disciples. And we're going to find out what that template is in just a few moments. He knew what his disciples must go through to ensure that his church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, would press on triumphantly. He knew that the devil is up to nothing but destruction. He knew the devil was right there in his vicinity under, dis, under the disguise of Judas. He knew that future generations would have to fight with the toils of the devil. He knew that as Christian families try to raise their children up in the ways of the Lord, that the devil would be right there to try to sow discord. He knew the influence of the enemy throughout all of the ages. He knew that the devil was right there working under the disguise of Judas during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The Lord knew that Judas was up to no good and that the enemy had influenced him. The devil had influenced him. But we are also reminded as disciples, if we were to travel just a little bit further out of the realm of the Gospels, out of the realm of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if we were to travel through the letters of Paul, if we were to travel through the first letter of Peter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter reminds us of this. He reminds us that the devil is like a roaring lion. And so he says, be sober-minded. 
1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Like the legs of a table, that should be steady. Sober just means stable. How many in here would eat their meal on a table that was shaky and almost up to the point of falling over? Not many people would put a meal on that table and eat off of that table without those legs being sturdy. So he reminds us to be sturdy-minded, to be stable-minded. Be watchful. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone who someone to devour. We'll come back to that moment uh, in the text in just, a, in just a bit. But God has built a church that is victorious. God has built a foundation that is victorious. His church is victorious, even with all of her flaws, even with all of some of the dysfunctionality that happens within the church walls, which sometimes I'm ashamed of. Even with all of the dysfunctionality, I think under the leadership and of the, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even that church will glorify God in the end. If the Holy Spirit is active in that church and people are being convicted, then there will come a time when they will see the flaw in their ways and they will glorify God. Even in light of the influence of the devil, Jesus shows his disciples love and care even while the devil is working amongst Judas. So the question is, Will we be influenced by the love of Christ even when the devil is working among us? Will we show the love of Christ even when we know some folks are up to no good? I'm not saying that's happened within our church. I mean, will we submit to the love of Jesus and be influenced by his lordship? Or will we be influenced by the cunning devices of the enemy? Who influences you? Jesus or self? I know that sometimes the enemy influences the thoughts of the church. We are not immune. We are not immune to the influences of the enemy. It is where we have our affections set. Are we looking towards Christ? Or are we looking towards other things in the world? Even when people think that they are on a righteous mission, in reality they are on a self-righteous mission mission and folks you know as well as I if you have been part of any local church for any length of time you know that sometimes people let their carnal or selfish ways get in the way of making decisions that will glorify God amen I have often thought that people want to have their voice heard when we have business meetings why do we have business meetings I mean, we have to vote on important things, but why do we have business meetings? Is it so that everyone could have their voices heard? I mean, there comes a point when we should not have to vote on whether or not we should stock our bathrooms with one or two ply rolls of Charmin. We don't have to vote on every little single thing. But I agree, we need to have our voices heard, but how would we do that? I mean, how are we going to make our voices heard? Because having our voices heard in the local church is important. But it's not fine when we squabble over the small things or the minute things. Arguing over things that have no significant eternal value. Do you think when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, you should have got double ply? No. If you want to have your voice heard, you disciple, 
you teach, you lead, you serve. If you want to have your voice be a lasting voice, you want your voice to be heard in the loudest and in the longest way, you do so by investing in the lives of those that need discipling, those that are young in their faith. Invest in their lives. Don't cut off our children. Don't cut off our youth before they have a chance to grow. Invest in their lives. See, we don't need a short-term voice that is caught in the context of selfishness and preference. We need a long-lasting legacy of leaving disciples that make future disciples. We don't need to be caught up in the context of the here and, 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 and now, the context of selfishness or preference. We need to be long-term. We want, we, if we want to have our voices heard, then it must be by leaving that lasting legacy in making disciples. Do not let the influence of the enemy influence you. If you're not leading your family, if you're not discipling people, if you're not putting an arm around folks and leading them, then you're not leaving a lasting voice that will be heard in the future of the church. And I understand it is the, it is the voice of the Lord Jesus. I understand that it is Jesus. It is the truth of Jesus that will be heard in the church. I understand that. I understand it will be the voice of the Lord Jesus and his voice that will be heard perpetually through the church but I want to be the type of disciple, and I pray that you do as well, that will convey his voice to future generations. Who are you discipling today? Who are you serving today? That is how we make our voice heard in the local church. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, verse number 3, all things given into the hands of Jesus shows that he was in absolute control Nothing slipped through the hands of our Lord. Nothing blindsided him. Everything happened according to his will. But John includes that to help accent and accent his, uh, his humility. To highlight the humility. It's much like we take a book and, uh, and when we have a, a portion of text and we take that highlighter and we highlight that with a, with a fluorescent looking uh, highlighter, whether it be uh, uh, yellow or pink or whatever it might be. And so John is highlighting the humility of Jesus all the more because here is Christ our Lord who helped form the universe. Think about it with me. Think about it with me. Here is Jesus, as the Bible said, was the Word, the very reason behind all of the creation itself. The Word became flesh, logos, reason, the very reason that Jesus uh, the very reason for creation is Jesus. Form the stars. Help form the moon. Help form the earth. And here he is about to wash feet of disciples. Now I remember growing up, we had foot washing services. And you imagine as a young boy watching and some of those feet that will come out of those socks. Let me tell you what. <laughs> as a young boy my eyes would be like oh Lord but it teaches something about humility Jesus was teaching them about humility and how to serve one another he was making disciples that would carry on and make future disciples remember one of the truths that I brought out last week in our Christmas service 
was that Jesus emptied himself of all earthly exaltation. Exaltation, being lifted up. Now, Jesus is still the Son of God. He is still creator of the world. But he humbled himself, emptied himself of any earthly exaltation. He brought himself down to the place of humility, as first, uh, uh, as uh, Philippians chapter 2 reminds us. But then it says, he rose from supper, setting aside his outer garment and taking a towel that he had tied around his waist, laying aside that garment. John is pointing us to Jesus who laid down his uh, social exalt, his exaltation in the world, laid aside his kingship in the world. He didn't come as a conquering king. He come as a suffering servant. And John is reminding us of that point. Setting aside that garment is a reminder and a parallel that Jesus laid aside his social status or kingship and came to the place of a servant. He's the creator of all the universe? Yes. He's still the son of God? Yes. He's still the alpha and omega? Yes. But laying aside his garment is to point once more to his humility and how we must be humble like Jesus. He poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, began to wipe them with a towel wrapped around him. We remember when Mary was washing the feet of Jesus and what a display of humility that was. To wash one's feet was to be done only by the servants. By touching another person's feet was a, a very degrading thing especially when you're eating a meal. Jesus is teaching them about humility and washing one another's feet is a picture of how we serve one another. It is also a picture of how we reprove one another. It's a picture of how we correct one another. If I, as your pastor, venture outside of teaching this Bible here, I would expect that some of you would come to me and say, Preacher, you're, just, you're, you're falling short on your duties as a pastor. You're not in the Word. You're not studying like you should. I would expect that some of you would come to me, gentleness and seeking to reprove me in correction, and I would do the same for you. But I would come to you in gentleness and come to you with some tact. I wouldn't come to you harsh. So the foot washing is a picture of how we can even correct our brothers and sisters. It must not be done out of ill content or it must not be done out of anger. And one day where this becomes a picture or an illustration in which we are to wash one another's feet as disciples is by this, is by correction. The correction must not be done with anger or hurtful words. Being Doing so is only defeats the purpose. We're not to lash out in anger. And on the flip side, as we reprove one another or correct one another, we're not to do so tamely either or too tamed where we let things go that need to be addressed within the local body. So how does a foot washing episode teach us about correcting one another? Just as washing a brother or sister's feet, we do not do so with boiling or scalding water, do we? When we wash a foot, we do not, of course this is a picture, we do not wash the foot with boiling water, nor is it ice cold. There is middle ground. There is balance. There is temperament in how we serve one another. Not with boiling or scalding, not with being too calm or too tame, but right down the middle in temperate terms. We find that the king washes clean in verse 6. He said, 
he came to Simon Peter, who said to Jesus, you imagine Peter, Simon Peter, very boisterous disciple, having his hand, maybe even have his hand on his hip and or arm under his uh, underarm, his hand on on his chin, very satirical, maybe very sarcastic, maybe even says, "Lord, do you wash my feet?" Jesus answered him, "Well, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand." But Peter said to him, "Well, you'll never wash my feet." And Jesus said to them, well, if, you, if I do not wash you, then you, do have no, you have no share with me. You'll have no part with me. You're not mine. If I don't wash you, you're not mine. And for all of Peter's flaws that come out in the gospel, this is one account in where, where I want to be like Peter. What does he say after that? Well, Lord, then don't just wash my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Wash me Totally. Wash me completely. Wash me from head to toe. Total surrender. This is an episode where I would want to be like Peter and show absolute and total surrender to the Lord. As Jesus is washing feet, it's virtually impossible to ignore what he's doing. I mean, here's the master washing feet. Virtually it's impossible to ignore him. I mean, here's the master, master teacher washing the feet of those around him. Now, Peter most defiantly says, are you going to wash my feet too? If it wasn't for his immaturity, and even sometimes our immaturity, we would have to say that Peter is right. If we were immature in our faith, we would have to say that Peter is right. And you might say, well, how do you, how do you mean? What do you mean by that? I mean, here's the master, the Lord, the teacher, the Son of God, washing people's feet. Much like John the baptizer would say that it is I, it's not I that should baptize you. I mean, you baptize me, Lord. I mean, I'm not worthy to, I'm not even worthy to, to, to close the latches on your shoes, on your sandals. But should I really be baptizing you? As, as to say, should I really be baptizing you? Oh, you're the Lord. You're, you're the Son of God, spotless lamb. Shouldn't it be the other way around? And so Peter would, would very similarly say, you know, uh, I, maybe, I don't, I don't know about this. I mean, the hands that form the earth, the moon, the stars is going to stoop down and wash me clean? I mean, he's the master of all of the world, the Alpha and Omega. That's love, people. That's love. So Jesus addresses Peter tenderly, right down the middle. Not hot, scalding, not cold, freezing. Tenderly, You might not understand all of this now, but there will be a time, namely post-resurrection, when all of this will make absolute sense. This is what it looks like when we grow in the Lord. When you become a Christ follower, you didn't have it all together, did you? When you got saved, when you committed to the Lord Jesus, when you submitted to Him as Lord, you didn't have it all together, and we still don't. This is what it looks like to grow. You might not understand it now, but you will later. You might not understand why things happen the way they do, but later you'll get a good grasp on, on the purpose. This teaches us to wait on the Lord and His timing, and it becomes clearer to us, His will and His purpose for us. But Peter very piously said, you won't wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash, you cannot be involved with me at all. Lord, not my feet only, but also my head. This is what it takes, this is what it looks like to have total devotion, total surrender, 
at least the attitude here is right from Peter. Look at verse 10 through. Jesus told them, whoever has bathed is entirely clean. He doesn't need to wash himself further except for his feet. And you men are clean, he says. Wow, to be pronounced clean by Jesus? Wow. Though not all of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And Judas was that man. And not all of you, there's one of you that will betray me. That's why he said not all of you are clean. If you think the devil isn't among us today, influencing us in our church, then we are sadly mistaken. The influences of the devil, he's not outside waiting for the benediction. Well, when we say amen, to say, hey, there you are. If we don't have our minds set on Christ, we're easily influenced. Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer robe. He sat down again and said, do you realize what I have done? Rhetorical question. He asked the question because they did not fully understand the significance of what he had just done by washing their feet. He had already just told Peter that he didn't understand everything. This is obviously they didn't realize what Jesus had just done. You call me teacher, which is a doctor or a master teacher, and Lord, and, and you are right because that is what I am. And so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you must also wash one another's feet leaving them instructions of humility. That doesn't mean that we have to get a tub out and wash one another's feet. If it be the case, then we would do that. But he's teaching them, he's setting an example, so that, uh, so that you, may have, may you, ha you may do as I have done to you in servitude and, and humility, setting us an example of being a servant and doing so in humility. The teacher must become the servant, this hierarchical attitude must be done away with, must be evacuated from the church. There's no popes in the church. There's, there's no one up here. There's no one up here spiritually. When, when the Lord looks at his children, well, you know what he sees? He doesn't see Pastor Larry. He doesn't see Deacon so-and-so. He doesn't see Deacon Chair. He doesn't see Sunday school teacher extraordinaire. You know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And whether or not you are righteous under his blood. And so the hierarchical attitude must be evacuated from the church. And so that we are not surprised when we're serving one another in the local body. And you see, you see one of our pastors take out the trash. You're not surprised if you see someone mowing somebody's grass. Who you said, well... They're a leader in the church. And look at them mowing grass. They shouldn't be doing that. I hope we never, ever have that attitude. That we wouldn't be surprised or shouldn't be surprised when we see a leader in the church walking along beside a young one in the faith, helping them to grow in their, in their walk with the Lord. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, with certainty, with absolute truth, a servant is not greater than his master, a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you understand these things, how blessed are you if you put them into practice? I'm not talking about all of you. And I know that I know the ones that I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. The one who ate bread with me has turned against me. A showing of Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it happens. So that when it does happen, when these things come to pass, when Judas would raise his head, do you know that I am? I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. 
And truly I tell you all with certainty, the one who receives me, whoever receives I, I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. This, my friends, is, this is disciple making. This is serving one another and making disciples. This is the continuation of humble disciple making, making other disciples. So now, listen, it comes a time of application. And I asked you the question at the beginning of this sermon. Do you trust Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Is he Lord? Would you trust him right now if you looked over and you surveyed the church and you saw an area that you could fill that gap? Would you be obedient if the Lord lead, led you to serve there? Would you trust him as he led you to serve in those gaps? Would you trust him? Charles Blondin was well known for his tight roping, uh, specifically for his walking across Niagara Falls. He was called the Great Blondin, and he was also called the Boy Wonder. This is before, this is for, before Batman and Robin. This is the original Boy Wonder. He is known for his tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, and on many occasions he would perform some very risky actions and tricks, if you will, on that tightrope with his balancing bar. He sometimes would do some very outlandish things as he walked across Niagara Falls. Well, well first let me ask you this. Who would walk across Niagara Falls with him? Right. Keep that in mind. At one point, he had his balancing bar, and I saw some photographs of this. Some renditions of this. He would have his balancing bar and he would have a stove strapped to that bar. He would walk across with a stove. And he would cook an omelet as he walked across that tightrope high above Niagara Falls. And I, also, I wondered what was in that omelet as I read this article. But regardless of that, he'd make this omelet. He would prepare it and he would lower it down. Now some men below would take that omelet and eat it as he lowered it down to them. Sometimes he would take a wheelbarrow and he would put that wheelbarrow and he would walk that wheelbarrow across, wheel on tightrope, and he would balance that thing, walk across Niagara Falls. One particular performance, he brought out his wheelbarrow, he set it down on the edge and began to make his travels out across Niagara Falls, tightrope, balancing bar, wheelbarrows in hand. And he looked at the crowd. He said, do you trust that I can make it across? And they all cheered enthusiastically. I mean, they, they went wild. They all cheered. Yes. We know you can make it across. The crowds were always hyped, it seemed to see them. Blondin asked the crowd, all right, I need a volunteer. Who's going to ride across in this wheelbarrow? You say you trust me. Who will ride? Who will volunteer? And you know, all of a sudden it got real quiet. All of a sudden it got real quiet across the crowd. I mean, they said that they trusted that he would make it across, but yet they are more content to cheer on from the sidelines. Did they really trust that he would make it? Or were they just spectators from the sideline? As Christ followers, are we all in when it comes to serving the Lord? When he says, do you trust me? And you say yes. If he was to say, are you all in? Are you all in? Do you trust him? To that point. If he called you to a hard place, that you would go there. 
Are you willing to ride across as it is with Christ? Are you willing to let Him wash you whole? Do you really, really deep down trust Him? Or are we all just watching from the sidelines? Now, I told you at the beginning, I'm going to share these. Just bear with me about a minute or two. Join me tonight at 6 o'clock in the fellowship hall, and we're going to elaborate more on these goals tonight. But I'm going to share these six with you, these six goals. If you have something to write, you can write them down. And I'm going to leave this with you, and I want you to mean business with the Lord as I present them to you. Write them down. Uh, pray through them with you and your family. And I'm going to elaborate more in our small group time in the fellowship hall tonight at 6 o'clock. Visions for the church in 2017. Number one, that we would commit to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which is church discipline. And we would commit to that as our guideline for problems with each other. This means that we do not entertain gossip. The discourse in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 would be our guideline, and I believe it is in our bylaws. But that we would commit to that individually and corporately. Instead of gossiping and entertaining gossip, that we would let Matthew 18, 15 be our guidelines. And I believe if we were to look at verse 1 there, the first verse, 15, that, we, that many times we would not have to progress further than that. Number two, that we would commit to serving one another in humility and not look for earthly rewards. It's good to serve one another. It's, it's good when we serve and when we give but may I redirect, we don't always have to see a reward from that. Is our church guilty of that? I'm sure we are somewhere. I'm sure we are guilty somewhere of looking for earthly rewards or the earthly pat on the back. I, I'm more worried about whether or not we're pleasing God. Number three, that we would seek to be open to how the Lord leads in worship, even if that means shifting a few items around in the quote-unquote order of service. Now, 2017, not to say that we aren't open to the leadership of the Holy Spirit now, but that we would be more open to how the Lord moves in our worship and that we would not be so confined to an order that is set uh, in our bulletin or at 8.30 the way we do it there. Number four, that we would uh, commit to meeting together more often, not just Sunday school, not just... Uh, not just for church service, that we would commit to being involved in small groups on Wednesday night or on Sunday night. We would commit more to being engaged in, in fellowship there. Number five, that we would value the intentions of the combined time of worship. I want to highlight this once again. The intentions of the combined worship were not to snatch away 8.30 service or to snatch away 11. It was to bring us together under the ordinances of the Lord's Supper in unity so that we would highlight the Lord's table, that we would highlight baptism, that we would value the intentions of that combined time of worship and come together more in fellowship. Then number six, that we would commit to being more missional, to see more, uh, to send more and to see more people literally go. Lottie Moon, we gave quite a bit and I got the numbers yesterday. It was we exceeded our goal, exceeded our goal. But I would like to see some folks from Piney Grove be called to the mission field and go. We are a missional church, don't get me wrong. But I would love to see us go into the world. 
every head bow, all eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time. Father, I know that we have spent some time asking some questions and engaging some heavy, heavy scripture. I ask you, Father, that we would commit our lives, Father, to being influenced by the love of Jesus and that we would be like Christ, humility as we serve, humbled as we serve one another and a community around us. And Father, if any of your precious word has struck the hearts of those here today, I pray, Father, that they would not leave this place today without making it right with you. Maybe there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior. May they commit to the Lordship of Christ and for the forgiveness of their sins. Fall before you today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.